Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal, as usual, is to find exceptional people, you know, clinicians, researchers, doctors, etc., and interview them and, and hopefully ask them good questions where I get uh, information out of them they don't normally uh, provide in, you know, boring articles and, you know, in the news. I want to get to the deep stuff. So today I have Dr. Tony Reed. Um, he's at Epicent Rx. He's the chief scientific officer. Uh, he has a PhD that was focused on antiviral and anti-tumor activity from Stanford. So we're going to talk about uh, his work at Epicent Rx. So, Tony, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks. So uh, just just for um, just to help you out, the company is uh, it's uh, Epicentrix. Oh no! I, I, you know, for listeners, I my kids make fun of me with my pronunciation, and whenever there's compound words like that or compound things I, I mispronounce them so okay uh, every, everyone does it's uh you, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know but just uh, uh okay. you know just to help out there um okay. and then uh in terms of my bio i did um my phd was in biochemistry but i did study uh, uh the virus effects on uh, cancer cells and i did a md there too so i did an md phd at stanford oh wow okay and what, what do you do right now for epicentrics what's your work there about um, I'm the president and the chief scientific officer. We developed uh, a platform for uh, engineering viruses to selectively attack and kill cancer cells and also, in the process, alter the immune system so that uh, other cancer cells can be seen and uh, treated effectively. Wow. Are those, well, I mean, those, those are two very different things. If, if you may, uh, let's talk first about the virus part. So how do you engineer a virus? I mean, do you, do you have to use cellular machinery to do it, or you know, what does that process look like? Yeah, so this was a very unique um, biological experience. So if you think about viruses, uh, let's take the common cold virus. Um, adenovirus is one of them, and it has about 60 different serotypes. Some of those serotypes will uh, infect the lungs and give you the common cold, but other serotypes will infect the GI tract and give you diarrhea. Other serotypes tend to infect the eye and give you conjunctivitis. So there's a recognition of a selective tissue or a trophism. So certain viruses will target certain tissues like the lungs. Quick uh, question so, here. Why do, they call, why do you call it a serotype? I thought sero is blood. I mean, is that an old way or old nomenclature? or What, what does that mean, the serotype? Yeah, it's an old nomenclature. It's a way of recognizing it by antibodies that are generated. So you can classify them um, into serotypes. We sequence them now, and that's why there's um, uh, so many different types that have slightly different um, uh, mutations, uh, slightly different genomic sequences in them, all within the same basic structure, uh, but uh, with enough variation that, so for example, some will infect the lungs and cause a uh, common cold, and other ones will infect the GI tract and cause diarrhea, for example. Is that, um, you know, because it's being talked about everywhere, is that uh, 
what you're seeing with the uh, you know the SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus? Is it doing the same thing, affecting different yeah, tissues? So, yeah, no, that's right. So you get the uh, coronavirus that uh, infects the lung tissue and, and does give you bad pneumonia and give you, you know, much more than a common cold. Uh, so that uh, some patients actually need to be hospitalized and even uh, intubated. Um, it doesn't, for example, cause uh, other symptoms such as infection of muscle tissue, for example, myositis, or uh, infection of the liver tissue, um, which would cause a hepatitis. So certain kinds of viruses, for example, will give you hepatitis, and others will give you infection of the lungs, so you get pneumonitis and things like that. So. All right, back to um, engineering viruses. Uh, you were saying there's all these different serotypes, they affect different tissues. And so again, how do you go about the process of, of engineering a virus? It took us several years, uh, but we uh, looked at the molecular switches that let the virus figure out what tissue uh, is the appropriate tissue for it to be replicating in. So we took one that typically infects the lungs. We identified the molecular signal uh, within the virus that lets it recognize that it's in the appropriate host, the lung tissue. And then what we did is knock that molecular signature out so that that particular virus couldn't infect uh, lung tissue anymore. And so it's essentially now um, a very weakened, you could use it as a vaccine even. Uh, it's a very weakened virus that no longer can replicate in lung tissue. And since it doesn't infect other tissues anyway, um, it's a very weakened or innocuous virus. We can then you, use that. A quick question here. How do you, um, I mean, do you culture a large amount of virus and isolate it somehow? And then how would you knock out part of its uh, DNA or RNA? Yeah, that's a molecular technique. So we go in and sequence the virus so we know exactly what the control sequences are. Um, and then we make uh, very small, deliberate changes in those signaling sequences. And then you have to go back and test them. So you have a hypothesis that a particular signaling sequence is what controls the ability of the virus to replicate in lung tissue. Um, you can then alter that so that switch doesn't work anymore. And then you go back and check it. Does it now uh, replicate in lung tissue? Or if you've knocked out the right switch, you've put it in the off position, then it doesn't replicate in lung tissue anymore. And that's what we did. Are you able to create just the innards of the virus, just the RNA or DNA, or can you actually create, you know, the capsid and make an entire virion? Was that not needed at all? Yeah, in our case, we create the entire virion. So uh, to make a tumor-targeted virus, we made very small but very strategic changes that uh, weakened its ability to replicate in normal cells, uh, but didn't affect its ability to replicate in tumor cells. So, all right, so you're able to engineer these properties, and then, um, I mean, is the virus selective enough that, I mean, well, all right, let me back up. How do you know the what would make it selectively attack a tumor cell versus a regular cell, let's say, in the liver? And you know, what's different about the, the tumor cell that would make it more, um, more able to be attacked versus a regular liver cell? For yeah, so tumor cells have the same receptors that, for example, the GI tract has or the lung tissue has. So they have receptors that recognize the virus. So when we knocked out the particular switches that allowed the virus to replicate it in lung tissue, so it didn't replicate in lung tissue anymore, we had to then go back and recheck it in a whole panel of cancer cells. And we could show that um, 
that it would replicate very efficiently in a wide range of cancer cells, such as lung cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic, breast, um, sarcomas, a whole variety of, of different uh, tumor types. This gets into, you know, secret sauce or proprietary stuff, you know, just let me know, no problem. But, but what would be in common about uh, cancer cells that would not be in common amongst our regular tissue cells? Yeah, so in cancer cells, they have essentially lost um, their polarity. So uh, all the cells have a structure to them uh, so that they're organized to be able to communicate uh, with other cells and neighboring cells. So, for example, in the lung tissue or the GI tissue, uh, you want to uh, make uh, secretory proteins that would, for example, give you mucus, but you want that to be secreted into the airways where it can be functioned. So there is a polarity to the cell to make sure that it functions properly and it secretes things normally. In tumor cells, they lose that polarity. And because of that loss of polarity, uh, they lose the ability to selectively replicate or not replicate the virus. And so in tumor cells, because they've lost that normal architecture, they're then uh, susceptible to infection to the virus. So would a given virus be able to enter into tumor cells and non-tumor cells just as easily, but it's the replication that is hindered, or is it the actual entry? Yeah, so they can still enter. Uh, So the virus can enter a normal cell. It can enter a tumor cell. Uh, And that happens um, all the time. It's just that it uh, can't replicate once it gets in there in a normal cell, but it can replicate, make new infectious particles and then uh, essentially lice or kill the tumor cell uh, because of replication within that tumor cell. Well, it's very smart. You're harnessing the, the natural ability of the virus to replicate and lice a particular cell, one that you don't want, which is great, and not do that to uh, you know to normal healthy cell. But what happens to a virus that doesn't successfully replicate in the cell? Is there an internal immune system where the, the cell, like, recognizes the material and just lets it sit there, or does it uh, chop it up and use it as fuel? Like, what do you think happens to it? Yeah, so within cells, proteins are always being turned over all the time. So the cell is undergoing metabolism, uh, proteins that are no longer functional or um, uh, abnormal in some way because they've uh, altered their configuration, um, get put into the lysosome, which is essentially the uh, digestive uh, garbage dump of the cell. They get uh, broken up into fragments and then recycled. Um, and so viral particles that um, uh, essentially are ineffective, they uh, will go so far in a cell, uh, they'll no longer uh, be of any function and they'll just get degraded. Interesting. So, um I mean, so, all right, so is there a residence time? You know, if uh, a virus is not able to replicate in the cell, is there, I mean, does it lose out time-wise, and that's why it gets pulled into lysosomes and digested? Is it just that, I mean, what is it that makes viruses successful, in your estimation, in cells that they're able to replicate, quote-unquote, fast enough, or are they able to fend off lysosome activity in the cell? Yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting, and... Um it's one of the things that we really tried to understand or that my laboratory tried to understand in trying to engineer a cancer-specific virus. And that goes again to that topic we talked about of trophism, that viruses recognize a certain tissue that is the appropriate 
substrate or the appropriate tissue to, to replicate in. Um, and so what happens is when, this, when the virus um, encounters a cell with a receptor that it can use, um, it will get internalized into the cell. And then it tracks along little pathways uh, to get to the nucleus, and it will dock at the nucleus. And along the way, it actually sheds part of its coat. So the virus has the ability to eventually dock at the nuclear membrane and then inject its DNA into the nucleus. And so um, if that process gets interrupted because it's not in the right environment, um, those shed proteins get digested and the um, you know, unprotected DNA then just gets uh, chewed up by the enzymes that uh, degrade DNA and RNA. Um, I thought that um, when a virus enters a cell, the capsid stays outside of the cell membrane and just the interior material goes into the cell. But are you saying that viruses can enter into a cell with the capsid intact or is there like a, a subcapsid nuclear envelope for the virus genetic material that's maintained that sheds once it's inside? Yeah, different viruses do it uh, differently, but yeah, the um, uh, the virus sheds parts of its coat as it uh, goes into the into the cell and into the nucleus. I didn't know that. So some do enter, you know, uh, capsid preserved and all. Uh, yeah, they can essentially uh, enter into um, an invagination uh, into the cell and then um, uh, enter into the cell that way. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Huh. Through through docking to the receptor, yeah. So with the adenovirus, it binds to what we call a CAR receptor, which stands for Coxsackie adenoviral receptor. So it's really very, it's amazing how complicated the life cycle of a virus is. You know, it's essentially not a living organism. It can't make a new viral particle outside of a cell. So it needs to go in and essentially reprogram the cell to be um, a manufacturing site for viruses. And that's what fascinated me about viruses as a way to treat cancer. If viruses can reprogram a cell to essentially focus all of its attention on replicating a virus, then um, it can infect a tumor cell and reorganize the tumor cell uh, in ways that uh, destroy a lot of the oncolytic or um, uh, oncogenic uh, properties of the cell. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Huh. So, uh, I mean, what are, you know, it sounds like a great solution. What, how long have you been working on this, and what are the, the major stumbling blocks to it working? Yeah, so I started this as part of my graduate work while I was at Stanford, where we were studying how interferon blocks virus replication. And what I discovered was that interferon can block viral replication, so uh, in normal cells. Um, and then um, as I was studying it, I realized as I tested various different normal and tumor cells that interferon would work to block viral replication in normal cells, but it didn't work to block viral replication in many tumor cells. And that led to the idea that tumors were in some way abnormal so that they were highly susceptible to viral infection. Um, and uh, as that turned out to be true, then what we needed to do and the stumbling block was how do we make a virus that is very safe in normal tissue but highly lytic and lethal to tumor cells? Has it been observed, observed clinically that people with certain cancers 
gets sick with a certain viral infection and it actually improves their cancer or gets rid of it? Yeah, actually. So uh, before the advent of um, chemotherapy and radiation, uh, there were the treatment for cancer at the turn of the century was something called coolie toxins. And coolie toxins were extracts of various different microorganisms. Um, the idea was that you would cause a, uh, an acute inflammation or essentially an infection within, selectively within the tumor cells. Um, and so there were reports, you know, of the tumors actually shrinking down and even responding completely to coolie toxins. Um, and so that led to the idea that uh, certain kinds of infections could uh, trigger tumor cell death. Yeah, because I could see that this happened. This would happen naturally. Hmm. But was there ever a robust process whereby, you know, you could deliberately infect someone with a certain virus that, you know, wouldn't make them horribly sick, but they would get sick, but it would have the benefit of uh, clearing away their cancer? Yeah, so that's what, um, you know, so when I was at Stanford, I developed a collaboration with um, a professor, uh, Frank McCormick. Um, at that time, he had the idea that he could target P53, which is a um, oncogene uh, with viruses. And uh, he came to Stanford, and we ended up uh, talking about how we could take advantage of my observations about interferon and his observations around P53. So he had already started this company called Onyx Pharmaceuticals, um, and we um, started working together to uh, along with the rest of the, the team at Onyx to uh, develop viruses that could be used to treat cancer. So, I mean, how how far along are you in your effort? Is it, uh, I mean, I guess it took years to be able to engineer a virus in the first place. And then, I mean, what was your starting point? What kind of viruses? You mentioned adenoviruses. Uh, are there particular ones that, I mean, I guess it depends on the type of cancer, but, you know, considering virus X as a backbone, you know, what were your starting points and, you know, where are you at now with this process? Yeah, so what we decided to start with was adenovirus. It's um, a common cold virus. There are millions, if not billions, of infections with adenovirus every year. Um, and it doesn't cause serious complications. So we don't even vaccinate patients for it because it's so common in nature. So the first thing to do was start out with something that was safe. Um, and because it had different serotypes. So the critical find, finding was that, for example, as I was saying earlier, if we started out with a virus that infected the lung tissue, it didn't infect the rest of the body. It didn't infect, for example, the GI tract or muscles or heart or liver. So pretty much all of the rest of your body is already safe from that virus. All we had to do was alter it so it didn't cause the uh, lung infection and a common cold. But we had to be able to um, reduce the toxicity uh, from the common cold, but in a way that still allowed it to replicate in cancer cells. So we started out with an adenovirus and engineered it selectively from there. So what is the, how does the FDA view this? Are they really uh, skittish about it, or are you able to fast-track development of something like this? I mean, like where are you at in the process, and you know, is it working in animal models? I mean, what, what's going on? Yeah, so uh, because it's uh, in an adenovirus, and we have a lot of experience with adenovirus, and we know they're generally safe, um, 
the FDA has not had a problem with this, and they particularly like the fact that we could engineer them to take advantage of essentially turning viruses that were trophic for the lungs uh, into viruses that were trophic for tumors. And so um, I found the FDA to be, you know, uh, you know, very supportive and very encouraging. Um, of course, we are, like every other company, um, held the standard of proving that it's both effective and safe. Um, and so, of course, that's what we're doing. So, I mean, is it, uh, again, are you at the point where you're testing in animal models or, you know, how long of a path ahead of you is it? And what, what conditions yeah, so, in particular, like what cancer are you targeting? Yeah, so uh, we've completed a large-scale uh, study on a, a variety of different animal models, um, and we've started human testing already. So the very first viruses we've engineered uh, to infect tumor cells, um, but to be engineered as a personalized cancer oncolytic vaccine. So what I mean by that is the virus has been engineered to express the specific mutations that a uh, patient's own cancer has. So the virus will infect the tumor cell and then express those cancer-specific mutant proteins at very high levels. Uh, so in the process of killing the cancer cell, it also exposes those cancer-specific antigens uh, to the immune system. Um, from what I heard, uh, cancers are very heterogeneous, and I would guess as they go along in a person and as they metastasize, they become more and more heterogeneous. Does this therapy work? Uh, I mean, what if what if you selectively are just killing certain you know types of the cancer cells and other ones are being left untouched because they've differentiated in such a way as they're, they're not affected by this virus? Yeah, so uh, that's actually one of the problems that we really wanted to address with our approach. And using a genetic approach, we can identify not just one cancer, one mutation in the cancer, but multiple ones. Um, so the goal would be then that um, any cancer cell would continue to have its core mutations, and because we have multiple ones, uh, we would be able to pick up uh, many of the different variants. The other thing is that as cancer cells have grown out, um, if they shift in some way to have a different uh, pattern, uh, than what we have in our virus, we can just go back and change the payload and put in those new mutations. So we can adapt our virus to the changes the cancer can throw at us. Does the, um, I guess it's, it's, well, it's kind of ironic or poetic justice for the cancer. It can't really call on the immune system to help it, you know, because um, it's evading it. Have you seen that, you know, from what I know, chemo seems to, again, selectively kill off some of the cancer cell lines and others proliferate. Um, have, you, have you seen a reaction to this virus that the cancer now is able to adapt around it or is it not able to adapt enough? Yes. Uh, so really, cancers haven't been able so far to adapt around the virus. Uh, the virus has multiple mechanisms by which it uh, kills cancer cells or uh, can replicate and turn off machinery that results in cancer cell death. So, so far, we haven't been able to see ways that um, cancer cells can um, uh, change in ways that really protect themselves against the virus. Uh, interestingly enough, cancer cells that are highly resistant to chemotherapy um, tend to be very sensitive to the uh, 
oncolytic virus we made. Hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, does this need to be personalized? I, I guess it needs to be personalized as to the cancer, but it needs to be personalized to the individual person as well. Like, do you have to first look at the degree and the character of the heterogeneity of a given person's tumor or tumor burden in order to craft this this virus, or can it be used on a population of people that all have a certain type of breast cancer, let's say? Yes, that's a great question because um, we've done both things because viruses can uh, enter cells and then rearrange uh, the gene expression within a cell. They rearrange it to make it efficient for the viral replication. Um, We can um, make those viruses perform certain tasks. So, for example, one way that the cancer cells uh, evade the immune system is to overexpress certain proteins that downregulate the immune system. Um, One of them is called uh, TGF-beta. So we've made an uh, an, uh, antivirus that goes in, uh, infects cancer cells, and kills them, but in the process of killing them, uh, turns off that cloaking mechanism, the immunoprotective TGF-beta. So uh, the cancer cells die, but all the neighboring cancer cells are now uh, exposed to the immune system. Huh. This is really interesting. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if, if, I guess if I were you, I would be freaking out and wanting to get this through as fast as I could. I mean, are there, are there any fast-track opportunities, or what's the runway here? How long until this can be used clinically, you think, or approved? Uh, so we've uh, uh, got approval from the FDA to start treatment. So we're just finishing up the manufacturing of the uh, high volume that we can use for uh, uh, clinical material. Uh, so we expect to be treating patients this year. Oh, wow. Well, for which conditions? Uh, essentially almost any solid tumors so that it could be uh, colon cancer or rectal cancer or breast cancer or um, any types of solid tumors uh, that are um, the cancer cells that this does not seem to work on are leukemias and lymphomas. But other than that, it seems to work on most kind of epithelial solid tumors. Wow, that's amazing. Huh. Yeah, we're pretty excited um, about it. It's been a, it's been many years to do this really very fine engineering. Uh, it's been exciting to kind of figure out how viruses infect normal cells and how they infect tumor cells and then take advantage of that biology to you know, create something that selectively kills cancer cells. But, but we did it, and we were able to alter it in ways that you know, can give uh, patients a real fighting chance against cancer. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, do you think that this will be – I mean, so if someone has cancer and they're listening, at what point will, they, will their doctor be aware or can be made aware of this possible therapy? When do you think that might be? Uh, there'll be clinical trials that'll be starting later this year. Um, it, they're going to start at selective centers uh, that are experienced in using gene therapy. Uh, so it'll be patients, um, you know, who are at those institutions or can go to the institutions. Okay. And then, um, if you don't mind, just because it's, you know, it's on everyone's minds, um, any insights that, you know, Epicentrics has into, you know, the current coronavirus ways to, uh, you know, to attack it and kick its, kick its butt? Absolutely. So we're, um, you know, because we can generate an immune response 
Our focus is to generate an immune response against cancer cells. As I said, we, we put in cancer-specific antigens to uh, immunize patients against their own cancer, and we've proven that that can work in animal model systems. So making a, um, a, a vaccine against corona virus is actually relatively simple for us. So we're already in that process. Oh, okay. So you're one of the companies that, that is working on that. Yeah, our specific interest is making sure that we have a vaccine that's safe enough to be used in compromised patients like cancer patients. And since our vaccine is designed to be used in cancer patients, um, you know, it, uh, it, it can be modified to really uh, be something that would be a tool available, not only for the general population, uh, which it could be, um, but also specifically for um, patients who are uh, immune compromised in various different ways, including having cancer or the treatment of cancer. Wow. All right. Well, I mean, you're very uh, reserved about it, but this uh, this sounds amazing. So I, I definitely wish you and you know and your company uh, a lot of success personally for me for everyone that needs the help. So any any um, well, how can people follow up? How can they find out? and look at Epicentrix process and uh, progress and keep tabs? Well, Epicentrix is a small um, to medium-sized biotech company here in San Diego. And, um, you know, we're, uh, we continue to expand and grow. And um, our clinical trials will, will be um, uh, starting later this year. And, in fact, we just started uh, last week a uh, treatment uh, uh uh, the FDA approved a, a treatment protocol for one of our other drugs, RX01, uh, for uh, patients infected with uh, coronavirus. Okay. Well, uh, is there a website, or what's the best way to find out more? Just Google Epicentrics, or is there a website to go to? No, oh, yeah. No, there's a website. It's Epicentrics, E-P-I-C-E-N-T-R-X.com. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Tony, thanks for coming. It's been a great call. Very interesting. <laughs> hey, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate it. And um, uh, we're excited, very excited to be part of, there are a lot of scientists who are working on cancer and, and on corona, and we, we are pretty excited to be part of that group that's trying to make a difference. And um, um, yeah, we just look forward to uh, helping out as many patients as we can. Great. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.